Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 174, The Keltcast, part three. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Denise, Callum, and William for signing up already. We start today with a few bare statements in the record. They're easy to overlook, and most people do, but they hint at a very important aspect of Pickland in the 700s. The absolutely enormous amount of political wrangling that was going on. Here's what we know. In 725, King Necton stepped down from the throne of Pickland and entered a monastery. The throne went to a new king named Drest. And on that same year, Simmel, son of Drest, was imprisoned. The following year, in 726, King Drest imprisoned Necton. Those are the facts. And they're strange. They lack context or explanation, and predictably, many people just ignore them. But they're actually really important for illuminating what was going on in Pictland, how their society was organized, and what was to come. So let's break it down. Necton stepping down is something that we talked about last episode. King Necton, upon entering a monastery, had become Brother Necton. There were several reasons for why he might have done this. It might have been out of piety. He had shown a great deal of faith during his reign, so this could have been a true calling for him. Or it could have been out of grief, as his two sons had died. Or it might have been due to politics. That last point is important. Necton might have been in a tight spot politically. As mentioned in the previous episode, Necton was responsible for Pictland breaking from the Celtic Christian path and siding with the Roman church instead. That was likely to ruffle some feathers, and as Pictland was tribal and loosely organized, it could have opened the way for a claimant to start gathering allies for a coup. And if he wanted to avoid open war, one way to do that would be to step down and remove himself from contention. As you might remember, becoming a monk has been treated as an effective way to remove a rival claimant in the past. And so his nephew, King Drest, might have demanded the tonsuring of Necton when he claimed the throne. This might have been a coup. So with that first fact, we're seeing hints of potential internal troubles within the ruling factions of Pickland. Then we get to the second fact. Simmel, son of Drest, was imprisoned on that same year. Now, Simmel, son of Drest, was almost certainly the son of the new king Drest. But, who imprisoned him? Well, we aren't told. It's possible that the king imprisoned his own son. If he was a rival claimant or some other kind of threat, the king might have felt the need to imprison Simmel. It wouldn't be the first or last time that a leader has imprisoned his own offspring. But rule wasn't absolute in Pickland. A king did not have complete dominance and power. It was tribal. There were rivals and factions. So it isn't out of the question that another branch of the ruling dynasty was looking to make a move against King Drest. And what better way to do that than to take the king's son hostage? And I suspect that's exactly what happened. Then we get to the third fact. One year later... King Drest of Pictland imprisoned Necton. 
Now, Brother Necton, because he was now part of religious orders, probably wasn't a claimant to the throne. So why would Drest imprison Necton? It's hard to say for sure, and that's not helped by the fact that we aren't even sure what imprisonment really meant in this circumstance, because it isn't clarified in the record. Considering the power of the church, it's unlikely that King Drest threw Brother Necton into a dungeon. Doing something like that to a monk would have been a very unpopular move. And considering that Necton was the previous king, and he likely had the support of large portions of Pickland, it would have been politically scary on that level too. So my guess is that the imprisonment in this case meant that King Drest relocated Necton to a different monastery, one that was within King Drest's homelands, and had plenty of people around that were friendly to him specifically. Now why would he do that? Well, that's where the imprisonment of Simmel comes into play. It's possible that there was some behind-the-scenes political wrangling going on, and the enemies of Drest might have been agitating for a regime change, or maybe even a return of Necton to the throne. So if Necton had joined a monastery that was friendly to his faction, which he probably did, he was the king and he could pretty much choose wherever he wanted to go, and he was maneuvering behind the scenes to make a comeback, that might have worried King Drest, and he might have wanted to move the previous king to a different monastery, one that would allow him to keep an eye on him, and also have his allies prevent any counter-coups. Given the political and religious circumstances of the time, that's actually what some scholars suspect was happening, and I happen to agree with them. The trouble with that is that King Drest was imprisoning the previous king, and even if he did it with soft imprisonment, like relocating him to a different monastery, that was still likely to rankle Necton's supporters. And, shortly thereafter, War broke out in Pictland. You might remember from last episode how I talked about how Pictland was a very loose confederation of tribes, and how our feudal understanding of kingship might not fully apply to tribal groups like Pictland and Dalriada. Well, here's a great example of that. We're told in the Pictish Chronicle that someone named Alpin came in and deposed Drest. Based upon his name, Alpin which sounds a lot like a Pictish form of Aelfwin, he might have been one of those Anglo-Saxon exiled nobles that were known to sometimes reside in the north, or a descendant of one of those nobles. So this new king might not have even been fully Pictish. He might have been Anglo-Saxon. There was also an Alpin who was active in Dalriada at right about this same time. And that's led people to ask, was this the same Alpin? Or was it a different one? It wouldn't be the first or last time that the northern kingdoms sought to influence each other, so it is entirely possible. But, the record fails to state definitively who Alpin was. So for us, he will just have to remain Alpin. Plain old Alpin. And in 726, it seems that he was King Plain Old Alpin of Pickland. Now that doesn't seem to have sat all that well with everyone in Pickland. Because we hear of how King Alpin found himself at war with Necton and someone named Ungus. So first off, Necton was out of retirement and back in the field. We can't say why, since the sources don't tell us. And we can't say why he and Ungus were fighting the man that defeated the guy who imprisoned him. Because the sources don't tell us that either. But they do tell us that King Alpin fought Ungus at Manade Crabe. And there, King Alpin was defeated. 
and his son was killed. Sometime later, in 728, King Alpin was once again defeated in battle against Ungus. And this time, he fled the kingdom and the throne, vanishing back into the mists of history from whence he came. Following up on his victories in the field, Ungus had an opportunity for advancement, but rather than taking the kingdom for himself, he decided to restore Necton to the throne. Necton was once again King Necton of Pictland. Sort of. There were still problems to be dealt with. In particular, Drest was still out there, and it looks like he still had some support within Pictland. So on August 12th, 729, we're told that Drest once again fought against Ungus and his army. And there, Drest met his end. The reign of Necton was secure, and Ungus, through his martial prowess and the degree of support he garnered in his fight for Necton, made his position as the heir apparent strikingly clear. We see evidence of that in 732, when King Necton died, and Ungus succeeded to the throne of Pictland. There was a striking degree of silence in the record of any disruption, loss of lands, or anything of that sort following his succession. So the transfer of power to King Ungus appears to have gone over smoothly. Everyone seems to have recognized that he was the new king. And fair enough, he had just kicked the bejesus out of two rival claimants to the throne only a few years earlier. But while there is apparently internal security, it doesn't look like that extended outside of Pictish borders. Because we're told that a war was raging between King Aedbert of Northumbria and King Ungus of Pictland. As usual, we aren't given details. We don't even have specifics on battles or the causes for the war. But it was important enough to note. And it was a big enough battle that it presented the distraction that Mercia needed to launch a surprise attack against Northumbria. So Northumbria must have been all in on this fight against Pickland. But we really don't know what was going on there beyond that. Some have argued that King Ungus was trying to place an exiled Anglo-Saxon noble on the Northumbrian throne, and that might have happened, but it is all speculation. All we know is that they were fighting again. Apparently, the truce struck between Northumbria and Pictland had come to an end. And then we hear of another Pictish war. Ungus was a warlike king, apparently. And that war seems to have been going on for quite some time. But in 741, we're told that King Ungus completed his campaign with the, quote, smiting of Dalriada, end quote. That sounds serious. But again, this is a situation where we're told tantalizingly little. And I feel we should just have the serial theme on loop for these episodes because of it. But something to remember is that there was an Alpin who was active in Dalriada during the era when we had that shadowy King Alpin who claimed the Pictish throne through war. So could that be the same Alpin? Could Ungus's war and the brutality that was directed against Dalriada be retribution for an earlier conquest by that Alpin? Again, we have almost no information on this period. But it is one of the possibilities for why King Ungus launched his Dalriadan campaign. And for our friends in Dalriada, the fallout from this war was felt strongly in their lands. Suddenly power was shifting away from the formidable Canel Lorne, and a new contender was introduced. In Dalriadan tribal politics, you now had the Canel Lorne in the north, 
the Canel Gabron in the south, and then you had the Canel Ungasa, primarily based in Isla. Like I said earlier, these clear lines between Pickland and Dalriada were breaking down. A cultural shift was occurring in the north. Meanwhile, in the west, the Welsh. Remember the Welsh? Well, they're still there. And in 743, we're told of how the Mercians were raiding along the Wye Valley. That would have placed the Mercians pressing right up against the borders of Powys, Gwent, and Glywysing. And the people of Powys in particular had not been faring well. Several episodes ago, we spoke of Mercian aggression and the destruction of the capital of Powys. Well, that conflict appears to have still been raging. And we're told that somewhere around 750, King Elisig of Powys freed his people from English, probably Mercian, control. And then in 760, we read that King Elisig fought a battle at Hereford, and probably was fighting against King Offa of Mercia. It appears that what we're seeing is British resistance against Mercia in the middle 8th century, which is impressive since Mercia in the middle 8th century was incredibly powerful. I mean, it was being ruled by King Offa at this point, and yet the record tells us that in his time, King Elisig waged war and was able to reclaim his lands. And he would have been reclaiming them from King Offa. That's a big deal. And while we don't hear of further attacks, we should keep in mind that the vast majority of our knowledge from this period comes from either Northumbria or Wessex, so it's unlikely that they would be at all interested in the daily goings-on in Mercia or Wales. It was outside of their borders, and it was none of their business, basically. But it does look like a war was raging between Mercia and Wales, because in 778, King Offa of Mercia attacked the Welsh. And then again, in 784, he marshaled his warbands and attacked once more. And then finally, probably somewhere in the 780s or 790s, King Offa went about constructing his enormous dike. And that would have required an enormous amount of manpower and wealth to build. But you can start to see why he'd want to do that. Now, Cyril Fox argues that Offa consulted with the British kings of Powys and Gwent in order to determine the location for the boundary markers. And that does seem likely, since the dike does veer in certain places to allow for Welsh retention of fortresses. Gwent was a powerful kingdom during this period, and the dike appears to have been constructed to allow Gwent to continue accessing the River Wye. So again, while we don't have detailed records, there are distinct hints of a staunch British resistance, and also of the Brits' ability to push back against mercy and domination. We might not see the form of unification that's happening in the north, but the Welsh kingdoms still had strength, and still had to be contended with. In fact, even the most powerful king in the east appears to have had to find an accord with his western neighbors. The Britons still had strength in them, Meanwhile, in the north, things were starting to get a little intense. In 793, a band of Vikingers struck Lindisfarne, and presumably became quite wealthy. Then, in the following year, 794, we read of another Viking attack, this time at Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow. And rather than going well for the Vikings, it was a complete debacle, and those that survived barely made it out with their lives. You can hear more about that in episodes 157 and 158. 
But considering that the Viking raids wouldn't return to Northumbria for decades, it seems clear that they learned their lesson. However, the lesson they learned wasn't stop attacking people and nicking their stuff. Instead, they just learned that they needed to hit different targets. So one year later, in 795, we read of how Vikingers struck the monastery of Iona. This is the first recorded Viking attack in Scotland, and its impact would have reverberated throughout the north. Just as the raid of Lindisfarne had shocked the conscience of the kingdoms of the south, the fact that a group of pirates were willing to attack unarmed holy men in Iona, well, that was about as horrifying as one could imagine in Scotland during this period. And to make matters worse, it looks like these same raiders were starting to use Orkney as a staging ground for their attacks. So the Vikingers were close by. Suddenly, they were living next door to one of the biggest threats facing Western civilization. But all wasn't lost. At around 800, a boy was born. It's thought that he was from a mixed background, with a Gaelic father and a Pictish mother and it appears he had claims to both Pictland and Dalriada. His name was Kenneth McAlpin, and he would change everything. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and we're also on Facebook, Tumblr, everything. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>